Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. This is Jim Marty reporting in from a beautiful fall day here in Colorado. I have my partner here, Rob Hunt. Rob, how you doing? I'm great, Jim. Just uh, enjoying another fun day of uh, cannabis and all things cannabis business. Very good. What do we have to talk about today? There's a lot of interesting things going on. We have election, off-year elections coming up. We have a Grateful Dead memorabilia for sale on the internet. Today's a, October's a great month in Grateful Dead history, so we got a lot of things we can talk about today. We sure do. So yeah, kicking it off, let's talk about the, uh, the Sotheby's auction. I don't think that's one that you know too many people are aware of, but <coughs> if you're a collector of Grateful Dead memorabilia, uh, definitely pull up the Sotheby's um, auction website and then just uh, type in Grateful Dead. But there are hundreds of items right now that are up for sale. Some that are super, super cool. Other ones that, you know, probably won't appeal to a mass audience. But, you know, a lot of it is, um, is amplifiers and speakers and, um, you know, certain keyboards. Like it's a lot of the keyboards the, uh, the Grateful Dead um, keyboard players used over the years. All available right now for sale. So if you want to pick up something that's just, you know, super unique um, and something that, you know, came out of the wall of sound, now's a great time to do it because these things don't come around all that often. Yeah, I took a quick look at it. And it looks like a lot of the um, speakers and amps and things that uh, that Bear put together for the Grateful Dead. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's a lot of that. I mean, some of those are you know have the insides kind of stripped out of them. Other ones uh, are still you know actively and able to be used. But it's um, you know the sheer volume of actually what's been put in there. This is you know a couple truckloads worth of stuff that has now gone to auction. So the auction is still live and active and anyone out there has got the opportunity to bid on it. And a lot of things are pretty much right at the reserve price right now, haven't really gotten much higher. So it's it's not like it's, you know, one of um, Doug Irwin's, you know, Garcia guitars that's being auctioned off. It's it's a lot of stuff that's, you know, kind of not quite as um, as well known, but certainly allows, you know, anyone that's a real fan to have a real piece of Grateful Dead memorabilia uh, as part of their collection. Yeah, really interesting stuff. I just visited there for a few minutes. Well, that's a, a good way to start things off. And then um, it getting into fall here and coming up on the off-year elections, some political things going on. And in my uh, home state of Colorado, under the category of uh, politics can make strange bedfellows, uh, we have an initiative that would raise um, adult use taxes at the cash register. The opponents are saying by as much as 30%. And then the... Um, Supporters or a lot of social equity um, friends of mine are are backing it. So here we have two groups that are normally um, together are on opposite ends on this. So I've had phone calls from both, you know, hey, we're not going to support this. We want to defeat this. Taxes are high enough for adult use at the cash register as they are to uh, some of my friends from the black uh, social equity community. uh, Jim, you got to get your industry on board with this. It's going to support all these great programs. Um, but if you, um, I actually got my ballot, uh, what's interesting, and this is how we do things here in Colorado. We passed a, uh, voter's bill of rights a number of years ago. So, um, the state of Colorado, the governor, the legislature cannot raise taxes without a voter initiative. So they get around that by calling a lot of things they want to do, uh, user fees. But this particular one is a ballot initiative that will vote on that first Tuesday in November. And, uh, We'll see which way it goes, but um, yeah, they plan to raise uh, $1.3 million a year, so they don't really say what percentage it'll be. They'll back into the percentage, saying we're now authorized to raise this much money from adult-use retail sales, 
and therefore the rate needs to be this. So if it passes, that's how it'll be put together. But a lot of concerns from the industry that it's just we're already over 20%. So this would put it over 25% most likely. And a lot of concerns that would drive uh, use, cannabis users back to the illicit market. Rob, any comments? Yeah, I mean, just so kind of along the same lines of a lot of what we talked about previously, Jim, which is that, you know, I, I keep trying to impress upon state legislators or on, you know, municipal legislators that taxing cannabis, while it sounds great and it looks like it's a panacea to, you know, line your coffers with newfound cash, it doesn't work as long as the illicit market is still out there and a viable option. And if they tax it to a point where the consumer now has a better choice in the illicit market, there's no motivation for people to, to access the legal market. You know, if I could get out, if I could go out and buy the same micro brews or the same quality of wine that I can get at the liquor store for a fraction of the cost, and I'm not, you know, uh, losing any sort of degradation in, in quality, I wouldn't be going to liquor stores these days. The only reason I go to a liquor store or the supermarket is a convenience, b selection, but most importantly, c price. And so, you know, if you taxed one so much higher when the illicit market's still around. It doesn't make a great deal of sense because I would much rather, if I were the state or the or a municipality, I'd rather have 100% of a pie with a smaller amount, you know, attributed to it than only gaining like 30% of the pie where, you know, you're, you're reaching into the pockets of the, of the guys that are actually trying to do things properly. And so I don't know how we can get it across to the state legislators that this is not going to work out the way you think it is. If you raise the tax by an additional 10%, but it causes, you know, 20% less people to access the market you're in trouble. And, you know, I looked at the initiative today and I also looked at the fact that Colorado is reporting for the first time ever that it may have a down year. It may have less sales of cannabis in 2021 than it had in 2020. And so if you look at the 2.1 billion that was put up last year in Colorado, that, that's a big number and still tracking for right around that. But this will be the first year, even if it's flat, it'll be the first year that's been flat. And so, you know, you have to ask yourself, does this mean that we've completely captured every person in the uh, the addressable market to access the legal industry? And I think being in Colorado, you, you can clearly say the answer to that is no. I mean, I, I know the answer to that is no. Yes. Um, many of our clients and uh, friends in the industry are reporting flat or, or down sales. Um, so they're not having the best year like they did last year. Um, you know, they were really a beneficiary of COVID last year with people on unemployment or getting their stimulus money and and working from home where they could consume more cannabis than they might normally do. So that novelty is kind of worn off, and uh, we are definitely seeing flat sales in 2021. The other thing that's really hurting the industry in Colorado right now is, uh, I think they have it in California too, we call it Croptober. And that's when a lot of the outdoor crop comes into the retail operations and really hurts prices. So uh, pounds are going for 800 to $1,200 right now at wholesale. Uh, that's what the cultivators are selling their product to the retailers for. A lot of times their costs are, are way more than $800 a pound. That, that's what I work on a lot with them is trying to get their cost to grow a pound down. And uh, anyway, uh, yeah, calling some of my good clients. Hey, uh, how come you're getting behind here? I'm paying, you always paid my bill on time. I said, oh man, we're lucky to get $800 for our pounds right now. We're really hurting. Well, aren't you lucky? Colorado is seeing $800 pounds because California right now is seeing four and $500 pounds. Wow. <clears throat> so you want to talk about, you know, the flood hitting. Um, you know, it's been that way. We've seen the, the biggest price drop that California's ever seen over the last three or four months. And that was before harvest really came down, the outdoor harvest. You know, this is all just uh, light depth harvests that were coming down. So uh, we expect to see it get significantly worse in the next month or two. And 
I had the feeling this would be one of the first years where, you know, there's going to be canvas that doesn't, um, you know, ever get sold or that lasts all the way until, you know, January or February or people are just taking their entire harvest and blasting it and winterizing their crude, hoping that they can find a home for it later on. But right now it's it's relatively dire uh, in California. And, you know, I, I looked at other markets uh, where people are still selling $4,000 wholesale pounds and just thinking you guys have no idea how lucky you have it by comparison to the states that are real producer states with a real outdoor market. Oh, that's exactly right. Um, I work in some of those states, have clients in some of those states with the $4,000, $4,500 pounds. It's just, um, you know, we build into their business plans sharp declines over the next five years. So we don't think that those prices will stay up there uh, at $4,500 a pound as more and more cultivators come online. So out in California, when you talk about $400 pounds, is that outdoor? It's outdoor and it's depths. You know, some of the uh, the mids that are coming out of the depth facilities, you know, hoop houses, those are all, um, you know, going for four or five hundred bucks a pound right now. Like anyone that was selling pounds for like eleven hundred uh, at this time, you know, four months ago, I, I should say, they, they're seeing almost a 40 percent, 40, 50 percent reduction in value. And uh, and there's no sign of it abating. Yeah, it is a commodity. Uh, it's a farm commodity. Uh, we, You know, you and I and our partner, Larry, have have uh, predicted this for years as more and more cultivation licenses are issued nationwide and it, it just gets it ridiculously expensive you know when you're talking sixty dollars for an eighth seventy dollars out the door when you add on the taxes you know that's quite a expense on your monthly bill yeah that's um that's top shelf pricing and we haven't seen so much degradation on top shelf out here in california this is really on sort of the mids and the mids, you know, are, are going for so much less. The top shelf has certainly taken a hit in the wholesale price, you know, going down from about 2100 a pound to call 1600 a pound. But it's still, you know, it's still relatively holding price for, for nice indoor. It's just the, uh, the outdoor and the, uh, and, and the sort of non-high-tech greenhouse that uh, we're seeing the major degradation. And, and what I'll tell you is while we've predicted the commoditization and price compression of cannabis in general, what I'll tell you is that ultimately, you know, California, I think, is still in a great position because with federal legalization, you will see California cannabis flood the markets that are selling pounds at 4,000. And all of a sudden, every one of those producers is in big, big trouble when they've got to compete with, you know, uh, California cannabis that's now moving into their market. Where if you were getting 4,000 before and someone's willing to sell that same cannabis for 1,500, 2,000, uh, I just don't see how the infrastructure in all these other states have been built up continues, you know, post-legalization. Like, there's no no reason ever for Illinois to produce, you know, uh, cannabis to be sold in Illinois or New York or, or any of those states. It just makes so much more sense to import everything from California. It does, um, and not to mention Oregon has is the tip of the Emerald Triangle as well. But I wonder, even if the, we have federal legalization, will there be interstate commerce or will it stay, will it stay with each state being a silo? Eventually, it, it'll be interstate commerce. I don't think initially. I mean, I think we've talked about the, the commerce clause issues and the dormant commerce clause issues that go along with this. So I wouldn't expect to see it right away, but I'd certainly see, you know, interstate compacts developing where California, Oregon, and Washington have, you know, free flow of cannabis across their borders. It's only the states that are trying to protect their industry, the oligopoly style states like in New York, that's going to try to keep people out for a period of time. But ultimately, I don't see how they get through that. And I don't think there's an attorney out there that's really looked at the, uh, the issue closely and has said that ultimately it'll fail and you'd have to allow, you know, cannabis to come through. Now, I think the states will be able to have some sort of self-determination or self-rule the way they do with liquor. Like, you know, you can determine, you know, who it is that actually sells liquor in your state. But can they prevent the uh, the free flow of goods coming across into the state? It's going to be real tough for them to do over the long term. So I, I'm still a better, a real better on, you know, if you're going to invest in, in a place to build infrastructure for cultivation, 
uh, it wouldn't be in the it wouldn't be in the northern states. It would absolutely be in somewhere in Southern California, somewhere in the Inland Empire, or somewhere in uh, the Central Valley, um, as it just has the by far the best growing climate. I wouldn't even go in the northern um, into the Emerald Triangle. I wouldn't go into Oregon or any of those spots because their quality of light and their quality of um, of sun is just not nearly what it is in SoCal. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah definitely. Well, that got us off on a bit of a, a talk about the overall industry. We started by talking about an initiative on the Colorado ballot. So we'll report back in a couple of weeks and let you know how that uh, ballot initiative turned out and what the implications of it either winning or losing are. But what else is going on, Rob? Well, there's definitely some um, some big mergers and acquisitions in the space right now. I don't know if you saw it was announced yesterday or today that uh, Pharmacan is buying LiveWell which is in terms of a private transaction, it's by far the single biggest private transaction I've ever seen. Uh, neither company is uh, required to report you know, what the price tag is. I don't think we'll ever know. But if I were to guess, John Lord at LiveWell is about to be a very, very wealthy man. Um, I mean, he's already a, a very wealthy man, but uh, I think he's about to, to sail off into the sunset, not needing to ever do anything else again in his life if this is really truly an acquisition by Pharmacan of LiveWell. Um, so that's a huge one. And on the other side, we had a huge breakup um, between Saris and Parallel, where Bo Wrigley's company called off the $1.9 billion uh, merger with Scooter Braun of Justin Bieber fame, uh, his company. So you know, we're seeing, as exactly as expected, 2021 still continues to be the year of the M&A. Uh, it still continues to have just sort of um, uh, like volcanic, titanic deals that are either happening or breaking up, whether it's you know, lawsuits between, uh, you know, Adam Bierman and the guys at Coastal, or whether it's uh, breakups between Saris and Parallel, or whether it's acquisitions of Pharmacan and, and LiveWell, we are watching just major, major activity happen in mergers and acquisitions. Yes, I got that notification from one of my good friends over at LiveWell yesterday. I've worked with them for many years. I still do occasional things for them. They've moved on to some large uh, national accounting firms for their work, but good people over there. And I do wish the Lord's father and son uh, the best. They've worked very hard. They run a great business. Uh, they've expanded uh, from Colorado and they're now in Michigan as well. So I don't know that much about Pharmacan. Illinois-based, big company, uh, definitely on track to go public here in the near term. Surprised they haven't already. But you know the last, the last raise they did, I think, was at a valuation of north of $400 million. Uh, and that was over a year ago. I've got, I think their valuation is significantly higher based on revenue pro- production right now. But they're, you know, they're they're the last Illinois company I think that's um, that's uh, still private. You know, I think Verona was the, the only other one before that. But I'm pretty sure Pharmacan has a New York license as well. You know, they they've got a good footprint. And you know, if I look at Colorado and I think who the three or four behemoths are in Colorado, you know, live well in Native Roots and um, you know probably like the Buddy Boys slash um, uh, the whole John Fritzell empire of, of stores, you know, is probably the, uh, the three largest right now. Uh, Green Solutions was the other one, and they got taken out by, um, by Columbia Care. So, you know, there aren't, aren't many real independents that are left in Colorado. A lot of the bigger ones have already been, you know, scooped up, or they're in the process of consolidating right now. And, you know, a, as you know, Colorado for a long time wasn't able to be acquired by outside groups because of the, uh, the residency requirements that existed. So while Colorado had this massive first advantage in the market in general seven, eight, nine years ago, they couldn't act on it. You know, they should have been the first companies to go public. The first companies, you know, you should have seen like the clinic go public and you should have seen, uh, you know, Native Roots go public. And those guys would have been the acquirers of all their competition. It didn't happen that way because Colorado had kind of a draconian law about, you know, being able to um, accept investment from anyone outside of the state. 
And that really slowed down the growth of the Colorado industry to, to be the dominant players, you know, coming out of the, uh, the, the 1.0 phase of, of legal cannabis. And it's too bad. You know, now they're now they're being acquired instead of being the acquiries. Yes, uh, yeah, that change happened. I think uh, 2016, 2017. So, yeah, we're now feeling the effects of uh, being able to have out of state ownership of our Colorado cannabis companies. But yeah, most of the people I work in, you know, 10, what 10, 12 years Colorado since we started really taking off in 2009 and then getting adult use in 2014. Um, Certainly, most people who have been in the business that long are looking for an exit of some sort. Yeah, I think that's nice that some of these guys will have one, but I think it would have been a lot, a lot nicer if a lot of those guys had been the ones that had taken their companies public first and you know, now had the $5 billion market caps the way a lot of their Illinois slash you know, other state counterparts do. Um, you know, with Colorado really paving the way for the rest of the country, it would have been nice if some of my close friends you know, were the entrepreneurs that really, really made it. Now, some of them have, you know, some of them are, are, you know, north of $100 million guys now, but there should have been a lot more of them based on the way the, the industry developed. Well, um, do you think we should talk about some Grateful Dead stuff or is more catch up on the industry here? I'm, I, I'm always happy to talk about Grateful Dead stuff, Jim. We could, uh, all sorts of good stuff. Obviously, Dead & Company tour is, is still happening right now. I think uh, they're, they're playing through the south as we speak, and I think they're headed your way, right? They Red Rocks bound here pretty soon? Yeah, next week. Uh, two Red Rocks shows and two, two shows at Fiddler's Green. So we're getting four shows all together. I uh, just hope it doesn't snow. Uh, we got a little dusting of snow last night. Colorado in October, it can be summer or it can be winter. And I know our good buddy Larry Mishkin is not with us today because he's still recovering from his three-night run at the uh, Porchester Capitol Theater. I, I didn't get a, uh, an update on the third night, but the first two nights I got some great updates and the set lists look great. And Larry's been raving that, you know, they're as good as he ever thought they'd be with as the quintet and that Warren is just, you know, absolutely crushing it. Um, but I don't know if you got in the same text message as I did when, when he was out there, but they, they sure look like fun shows. Yes, and Phil's in great form at 81 years old. Uh, very, very thin, but but look, he looks strong and healthy, and he's dancing about the stage. And uh, We just saw him uh, in September here in Colorado. I think the Colorado run was a warm-up for the Capitol shows in New York. So I'm glad to hear he's having fun with that, and I'll report back on the Colorado shows, and hopefully, like I said, we'll have, uh, have uh, good weather for that next week. But yeah, uh, Dead and Company at Red Rocks. What a treat! Uh, I saw Bob there earlier this summer. I wonder how many people in the cannabis industry are skipping it to go down to Vegas instead. You know, both things are happening this week. So, do you go to MJ Business or do you uh, or do you see uh, Dead and Co? It's you know kind of a toss up. Yes, um, and again, I don't know which one I'll attend first, but uh, or last, but I'll try to dip my toe in the water at least a little bit in Vegas and then catch a show in Colorado. So I'll be reporting back. But yeah, MJ BizCon next week, first big cannabis convention since COVID, and we'll see uh, how that goes. Uh, Vegas seems very crowded. Uh, I called ahead to make some dinner reservations and uh, got turned down by some of my favorite restaurants in Las Vegas. Of course, I was trying to make a reservation for 10 people, but uh, I said, two weeks ahead and I can't get a reservation? So yeah, I think uh, MJ BizCon in Vegas will be very interesting. As I said, first... uh, large convention since cannabis. I'm not sure if they'll have mask requirements or not, but I'll, I'll report back and let you know how that goes. They, they, they do. I was actually in Vegas uh, last weekend, and every casino requires you have a mask on uh, on the casino floor and in all the hotels. 
you can't walk anywhere inside in Vegas uh, without a mask on right now. So I'd expect that that'll be the same through MJ BizCon this week. Okay. Well, I'll make sure I'm prepared. So, um, but October, big month uh, in the Grateful Dead's world. I did some research for this show the other night, came up with a, a great show on 10 17 74. Wonderful set list. Uh, we're going to listen to a little bit in just a few minutes of, a, of a Casey Jones from that show that made it onto the double live album that's often referred to as Steal Your Face, which is the iconic skull and lightning bolt on a plain white uh, album cover yeah listen to that show some great tunes on it there's a feel like a stranger there's a um, nice weather report suite uh, very very strong set list that don't happen to have it right in front of me do you rob i do it's actually uh, i know the show pretty well it's a 14 song first set with an 11 song second set with a couple things that that make it great and i don't think there is a stranger on that um on the show so it's it's a promised land half step black throated friend of the devil jack straw loser el paso into one of the best china riders of the early 70s just a stellar china rider uh me and my uncle must have been the roses but then a full weather report to, to close it out with the let it grow and then the second set was was fantastic it's one of the last times the scarlet got played before it got paired with fire so it opened the second set with the scarlet uh, big river and uh, the, sort of the highlight of the night is the, the, the ramble on, then the Mexicali, and he's gone. And then they kicked into something that you know most people refer to as one of the, the great ones, which is the other one into a Spanish jam, into a, a mind-left-body jam, back into the other one jam, and into the other one. That was like a 24-minute uh, other one sandwich, I guess, you know, with, with a Spanish jam and a, and a mind-left-body or heaven-help jam, depending on what you want to call it, uh, in the middle. And then closing out with the Stella Blue Sugar Mags. And then they double encore, and they, they double encore with the Casey Jones U.S. Blues. So this was this was meant to be the first like sort of closing of the Winterland in '74 before the actual like time in the Winterland itself closed. But it was like the Grateful Dead's farewell to the Winterland when they didn't think they're going to play it anymore because they'd outgrown the room. Uh, and so they recorded a lot of it. The Casey Jones, as you said, goes on "Steal Your Face," and that China Rider actually ended up in the Grateful Dead movie. Yeah, I just watched the Grateful Dead movie. Boy, that's a classic. I really enjoyed that. It had the old video uh, VHS tape, um, and that shows some great, great scenes of Winterland uh, in that. It also was near the end of the first kind of leg of the Grateful Dead, because in 1975, they headed into the hiatus, took some time off, um, and as a result, we got out of that hiatus came uh, Blues for Olive. I have all my timelines correct. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Well, Blues for Allah came after um, came after the the Egypt uh, tour, so or excuse me, the Egypt shows, which I think were seventy eight. But you definitely um, you definitely got a fair amount of like good stuff coming back, and they came back super strong in seventy five when after they took the break. I can't, I can't remember what the first show back was, but it was a a beast that they ended up putting out as a um, one of the first Dick's picks or one of the first live Dead albums um, in the. Uh, you know the the non traditional album phase of the of the band in like the early nineties, so it was a, a terrific period of creativity that I think the hiatus really was the um, the catalyst of. Yes, for sure. So, um, well, let's listen to a little bit of that Casey Jones.
thunder. It is. It's uh, straight enthusiasm out of that Casey Jones. And, uh, and the show I was thinking of before is the, when they came out with the Great American Music Hall show. So, you know, as you said, they, they came out with so much energy at the end of 74 and then brought it back in when they came off hiatus uh, in, in 75. So um, I, I always think whenever they played the Winterland as kind of a, um, a finale, uh, Winterland just had so much energy yes. in it. Yeah, and that, I am correct when I say that is the backdrop for the Grateful Dead movie. Yeah, it is. It is. So all the books that you read about Winterland and the um, wooden floor and you know the hot dog stands, all that's very uh, well put together in the Grateful Dead movie. Yeah, and by the way, Jim, you're you're spot on. Blues for All is 1975. I was just checking on that, and I, I thought for some reason it, it happened um, post Egypt, but you're absolutely right. Yes, I thought so. Um, having been old enough to buy the record. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, you're, you're right. So I, I think that was the uh, the catalyst for them wanting to go to Egypt, perhaps, and, and I just had that in reverse. Well, um, and it is a bit of a sidetrack, but Egypt came about through a cultural exchange that the Carter administration did as part of the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. And so that's another little piece of history of how the Grateful Dead actually got to Egypt. Wasn't aware of that, but I know that... It was certainly one of those uh, trips that I think everyone, if they, you know, anyone that was on that trip has looked back and said that was one of the highlights of their life as far as travel, of just being such a, a unique time to be able to play in front of the, uh, the pyramids of Giza. And the videos from Egypt are just amazing, seeing the Sherpas dancing to the Grateful Dead, just amazing uh, video footage. Yeah, totally. And yeah, it's uh, amaz- amazing that in 75, you know, coming out of this, they, there's only four shows played in 75 at all, which were uh, one Keysar, one Winterland, one Great American Music Hall, and one in Lindley Meadows in Golden Gate Park. So the dead that year never even left California, and they sort of staggered four shows across the year. So this, this really was, you know, towards the end of the, um, of the, the, as you said, 1.0 of Grateful Dead before they took their first real hiatus. Right. Right, and when did they come back and start touring regularly again after the hiatus? Uh, I believe in, in, in early 76. I mean, 76 was a relatively, uh, relatively jam-packed year of shows. But uh, I think 75 was more of just, let's, let's take a break, let's, um, let's reconvene and decide what, uh, what we want to do. Um, but it was uh, you know, plenty of shows in 76. All right. So, um, well, without our third leg, Larry Mishkin... Um, I think we'll cut the show a little bit short today, unless you have other things you want to bring up. No, I, th- I think uh, I think we've covered a, a fair amount, and so, uh, you know, for all those out there that don't get a chance to listen to a period of you know seventy four, uh, I know we had David Gans on a couple weeks ago. Who said seventy three was his favorite year, and uh, you know for a lot of reasons that he mentioned, uh, seventy four I find to be exceptional. So you know, for those of you that aren't necessarily um, you know sort of the primal dead uh, Fillmore style people and you're not, you know, the 80s, um, you know, Godshaw period. The 74 is, is kind of a, a great way to, to bridge the gap before it, it really turned into like the, the juggernaut we knew in 77, 78. So go back and take a listen to the show. It's got, um, as I said, the other one, Spanish Jam, um, Mind Left Body, other one's amazing. And the China Riders is, is absolutely spectacular. So great way to, uh, to spend your afternoon, listen to some Grateful Dead and uh, smoke some more cannabis. <laughs> All right, I think we have another outtake from that show to sign us off.
Gill. See you tomorrow night. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.